Welcome to the Fuzzy Quality Podcast, Podcast. examining AI quality and testing topics and hosted by me, Adam Leon Smith. Hi, it's Adam Leon Smith here, and I've got Rick Marcellis with me today from Sugeti or Sugeti, depending on, on where you come from. So, Rick, um, you wrote a paper quite a few years ago, I think now, that I read about AI and quality characteristics. And this was one of the initial pieces of work that got me really interested in this whole topic of AI quality and testing. Uh, you remember the paper, of course, the the Sugeti Quality Characteristics paper? Yes, of course. Uh, and Well, hi, Adam, and uh, hi, listeners. And yes, that paper was one of the first things I wrote together with some colleagues uh, in the field of uh, artificial intelligence. And I, I was very much interested and didn't know too much about it, so just started digging into it, uh, talking with people, reading about it, learning about it. And yeah, and of course, we quickly discovered that the traditional quality characteristics were not sufficient if you want to assess the quality of uh, AI-based IT systems. So that's why we took the initiative to look into what other quality characteristics would be needed. And what what triggered you to look into the topic? Was it personal interest or did you come across a a business problem? Well, a bit of both, but the main driver for me was personal interest. And I I, actually, I was mainly interested in robots and robotics, but then uh, you quickly get to the field of AI that is used to yeah, used used to uh, drive robots, um, and that's how I ended up uh, uh, looking into uh, quality characteristics for AI and also a bit for uh, robotics. And of course, there's an, an industry standard quality model we all use the the Square model, but it's it's kind of lacking once you start looking at both machine learning, robotics, and AI, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's true. I. I uh, you refer to the uh, ISO 25010 standard. That's right. And, and many people know it and use it, but indeed it was made without any uh, yeah, any look at uh, AI or, or that kind of modern technology. And therefore, um, it doesn't contain everything you need if you want to uh, yeah, test uh, artificial intelligence. and, and uh, so that's indeed why we looked into it. And I guess there's two levels of problem here, isn't there? Because around machine learning, you have probabilistic accuracy. So, you know, you can't run one record through a machine learning algorithm and get a result and then go, this algorithm is okay. You have to run a statistically significant amount of data through an algorithm and use statistical techniques to assess it, right? But the problem around AI and robotics is slightly, slightly different, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. There are uh, quite a number of problems depending on uh, the kind of AI you use eh? because uh, also there's a lot of debate what is AI and what is not AI um, because uh, f- from one definition uh, of AI, uh, which is 
uh, AI is everything that uh, yeah, a machine does that looks like a human does it. Uh, then a simple chatbot is also AI, but it doesn't involve uh, machine learning, for example. Uh, but it is able to do a conversation, and a conversation is something that normally only people can do. Um, so we looked at it from quite a broad perspective. So the example you mentioned about probab- probabilistic uh, uh, measures for machine learning is one way of looking at it. Um, so what we did is we we investigated what kind of quality characteristics are missing and we made three groups with and our first group was intelligent behavior so does it actually look like it is intelligent um and uh, we have some sub characteristics that we may dive into uh, in a minute and then the second group is morality because you can do things with ai of which you can wonder if you actually would want these things to happen Um, And the third is personality. And that is especially when uh, AI is used to communicate with people. And that may be in robots, but it may also be in a chatbot or any other form. Um, And then you also want to know, is this personality adequate for what we uh, want to achieve? And these are hard philosophical problems as well. I mean, within within quality and testing, we're always trying to measure things and move things to a binary pass or fail result. But once you take morality or, or ethics, you know, these are big philosophical issues with multiple strands and disciplines and um, and kind of subfields. It's very hard, I think, to take a requirement that this system must be moral or this system must be ethical and oh, decompose yeah. that into intertestable statements. And I think the same applies around personality as well, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that our perspective was not to get yes or no answers, but more or less answers. Eh? For, for example, mm-hmm. if, if it's about ethics, then some things are totally unethical and other things are just generally accepted. But there are also things that may or may not be ethical depending on the situation. And and another one that we put under morality is is, uh, human friendliness, as we called it. And that is, uh, is the AI friendly to people? And then friendly maybe in various ways, because if you have a chatbot that tries to sell you uh, insurance it probably needs to be very kind etc but if you have a let's say a robot dog that assists a police officer to make arrests then well probably that robot is less human friendly but still it's not supposed to to kill the suspect eh? so there's different grades of uh, what you would expect and, and also, I think these quality characteristics, on one hand, are nice to define exactly what kind of quality you would like to have. But far more important is that it helps people to think about what to look for. Now, because often these quality characteristics have the most added value early in the process of, of 
development of new systems. Eh? So when you start building, for example, uh, a robot, you would like to think about what can it do to people and do we think that is good or bad um, and, and what limitations should we build in? And you ended up writing a book about this, right? Yes, we uh, we wrote the book, which is called uh, Testing in the Digital Age, with a subtitle, uh, AI Makes the Difference. And um, it is both about testing uh, off AI and AI-based systems, um, but also testing with AI, so using AI to test other IT systems. Yeah, so that last one, uh, uh, using AI to try and accelerate testing, is a really interesting topic that I'm going to be covering on this podcast as well. One of the things I've noticed, I did a survey of all the different tools available, and I found very little open source work, um, with a couple of small exceptions, such as Evo Suite for AI unit test generation. With a couple of exceptions, I found very little in the public domain. Almost all the AI-enabled testing tools are all sort of within the um, within the startup commercial world. Yeah. Would you agree with that, or have you seen some good open source ones? Well, in general, I do agree that it's a lot of small companies uh, having AI-based tools or claiming to have AI-based tools because uh, I'm, I'm a member of the uh, uh, work group for uh, testing and AI of the Netherlands Association for Testing, which is called TestNet. And um, in this work group, uh, we also did a survey and we found, I think, about 30 different uh, tools, but some of them, the only AI involved is uh, on the box. Uh, it says AI, but we couldn't find any evidence of AI. Um, but back to your uh, open source question, um, I know of Teststar, and Teststar is a tool that was created by uh, students and uh, also uh, PhDs and, and postdocs uh, at the University of Valencia in Spain, together with the Open University in the Netherlands. And the professor involved is uh, Tanya Vos, uh, a lady from the Netherlands who now lives in Spain. And, and this tool... Um, uses AI to uh, evaluate the quality of uh, GUI-based systems. Eh? So it just observes the GUI, finds objects, and tries to do things. And at the start, Testar was uh, yeah, quite simple because it just pushed buttons. And then if it didn't crash, then it was okay. But they are building more and more AI in it. So not only... Uh, AI for image recognition to find buttons on the screen, which of course already is very helpful, but also AI to evaluate the behavior and to see whether it is expected behavior or not. And th they're making very interesting progress. Um, on the other hand, it being an academic tool, it moves relatively slowly. Um, and that is uh, related to the general idea these days uh, that that everything should be available uh, immediately, etc. And well, this project runs for multiple years now. I think 
you know, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if they're working on it for a year, something like five years already. Um, but still, it is very promising and it is open source. Eh? You can just download it and run it on your own machine um, and, and work on it and preferably collaborate, of course, and, and give back uh, good ideas. Great. I, I might reach out to Tanya to see if uh, she can come on this, this podcast. I've, I've seen a number of tools a little bit like that that use uh, the UI as kind of a search-based problem. So they explore what they can do and they try and record what they've done and, and create a, a baseline. And a, as you said there, I think one of the constraints is really the expected results because they can have an implicit oracle, which is that the tool shouldn't crash, right? Just something that, that is implicit and obvious. And they can create a baseline to compare to so that they, uh, they can test a new version is, is functionally equivalent. And I think there's a really big use case for that, particularly in um, organizations that are doing things like operating system migrations on legacy apps, where it's not a new app. They haven't got a big team of developers and testers with, with knowledge of the app. They just need to do some regression testing to see if it works when they change an operating system, upgrade a database, upgrade Java, etc. And I think that's a really big use case where you can just throw an AI at a system, make some changes and see, is it roughly functionally equivalent? I guess it's much less relevant if you're developing a new system, you've got very frequent change and you want to know that it really satisfies the user requirements. Yeah, I agree. That's, uh, and, and, and therefore, I think still a lot of uh, development needs to be made. And what I would um yeah i would say especially also to our audience is that don't have a the expectation that your ai based testing tool will do everything automatically but more see it as a toolbox that has some very helpful things in for example recognizing objects but also and that's also a thing that they are trying with testar is that the uh, human and the tool together uh, decide what is okay and not eh? because you can train the tool to recognize specific behavior and then you can tell the tool this behavior is supposed to be uh, accepted and this kind of behavior is not accepted um, and uh, so then the tool itself does not decide what is correct and isn't but Together with the tester and the tool, you can make a lot of more speed, so you're much more efficient than if you as a tester have to make the decision every time again. Yes, no, I totally agreed. I think, actually, just going back to one thing you said a couple of times before about what is AI, you mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. I think if we go back to the 80s, I think if we talk to an AI researcher from the 80s, you know, the work they were doing we probably wouldn't call AI these days. And if we went back to the 1950s, you know, pe people like Alan Turing were doing research on AI. Um, but again, the, the things that we now call AI are, are very, very different. I think um, perhaps we've reached a little bit of a plateau in the machine learning space where I think um, progress in terms of the algorithms and the technology is somewhat slowing but there's lots more application of it happening in, inside industry. I feel like there's still a long way to go on the higher level implementations of AI using robotics and, and mimicking the behavior of people, though. 
What do you think? Are we are we reaching an AI plateau and risking another AI winter, or is there a, a lot more going to happen in the next few years? Well, I don't think we'll we are risking an AI winter at all. What I do see is that these algorithms they are you might say stabilizing. Yeah? So so there are some really good algorithms and. There's not too much evolution there, but we see a huge, uh, yeah, uh, uh, a, a huge grow in applying all these AI capabilities, um, because uh, it it all started with image recognition and some text to speech and speech to text, but more and more we see integration of different types of AI to solve larger problems. Um, and, and for example, uh, autonomous cars are a nice one there because you need quite a lot of different types of AI to have a useful autonomous car. And, and another one is, for example, robots. And robots need uh, image recognition, but they also need... Uh, uh, all kinds of mechanics and recognizing what happens in the mechanics and how to respond to that. Um, and of course, one thing that we now have that people in the 80s, let alone in the 50s, didn't have is enough computing power to do it in real time. Um, because you probably also know these uh, funny videos of the first attempts of uh, robots that were standing up, so robots with only two legs, and they were falling over all the time. And uh, but that was just because they didn't have enough processing power to, in time, adjust their movements. And if you now look at the videos of, for example, Boston Dynamics, it's amazing what they can do. Um, mm. And sometimes it's even frightening what they can do, eh? because. Uh, th th there's a lot of debate on what should be, uh, yeah, what what should still be allowed. Eh? You probably also know the discussion about autonomous weapons, um, and that's yeah, that's a, a, a very difficult thing. Indeed. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more application in the using AI to conduct and support testing. I think we'll see a lot more of that application and development in in the coming years. In terms of AI and its its relevance to quality and testing specialists, I think um, you know two years, two three years ago, it was very much a data scientist's um, responsibility to worry about things like like testing. Whereas I've seen a lot more conversations happening in the testing community over the last couple of years, a lot more discussion around how do you approach the integrated testing of AI and, and ML uh, systems. Do you think it will increasingly become an important part of a quality specialist's role to to understand AI and, and how to how to test it? Well, I see two contradicting movements. One is testers who really dive into AI because indeed they feel they need to know a lot about AI to be able to uh, test it well, and these testers, they become half or almost full data scientists. Um, other testers, and I must admit I'm more in that category, just see an AI system as any 
IT system, there need to be specifications and expectations, uh, requirements, and then we check whether it meets the requirements. And if you need to do things like what we traditionally would call uh, component testing, then you would need uh, very detailed knowledge of how these machine learning algorithms work, for example. But if you just need to evaluate, for example, if a chatbot has a decent conversation, then you can do that from a more, yeah, let's call it black box perspective. And you don't need to know all kinds of details about how AI and machine learning work, but you do need to think about what do I expect of such a machine? And and one of the interesting things, for example, with chatbots is the personality of the chatbot. Because if you uh, are... Uh, testing a chatbot of, let's say, uh, a well-known old-fashioned insurance company, you wouldn't expect the chatbot to start with something like, hi, mate, but probably a good morning, uh, uh, sir, or something. So personality then is something that I would be able to test even without knowing what kind of AI is behind it. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction you draw. I think um, I think some of this it depends how effective a data science team you're working with, because I've heard data scientists really rail against people doing any kind of statistical testing other than them. And of course, there's so many more elements to the the system than just the the model. There's the data pipelines. There's how the data is collected and labeled, which is more of a, a quality assurance issue. I've also seen teams where they use um, machine learning as a service. So they use a Google product or an Amazon product, for example. And it doesn't even occur to them to do any statistical testing. They just see it as an outside service that will just work. And then they get these complex issues in in user acceptance testing that they struggle to kind of isolate the the causes of. But I agree with you. You know, a lot of testing is is really just about the the core functionality. And the difficult bit is is deciding what you want to see from the software and what what makes a, a pass or a fail in in the eyes of the, the user or the stakeholder. Yeah, indeed. And and like you say, a, a lot of these data scientists don't really think about quality and especially what kind of flaws there might be. Because I literally had a discussion with a quite uh, uh, experienced data scientist and I, I challenged him on how do you know if this algorithm is okay? And he said, We've been using that for years and many people are using it for years. So why bother? And then I think, yeah, well, still it may not be okay or it may not be suited for the application you are now looking for. And and uh, that's one thing that testers or quality aware people in general can bring to the table is just to think about what... what uh, yeah, what what levels of quality are we expecting? Um, because uh, data scientists often have quite a narrow view on what the system does and what it's supposed to do. Um, on the other hand, I have seen very nice examples coming from data science. You probably know one of the challenges that we as testers in general have is we're not allowed to use privacy-sensitive data. Um, 
And some colleagues mm-hmm. of mine from the data science department, they have now uh, made uh, some sort of tool where the uh, they use two AIs and one AI uh, investigates the uh, live data. So that is uh, privacy sensitive data and it just investigates what kind of data is there, what is the structure of the data. And then they have another AI that creates synthetic data and then the synthetic data AI just asks the uh, privacy sensitive data AI is my sensitive uh, synthetic data uh, according to the structure of the privacy sensitive data and then uh, this obviously goes quite quickly and after not too long the synthetic data meets the structure of the live data without any live data ever having be involved. So you're Mm. certain that the synthetic data is not privacy sensitive. And uh, that's a very interesting thing. Um, And the funny thing is, some people I talk to, they say, yeah, but that is not AI testing. And then I say, well, test data management is part of testing, huh? Yeah, agreed. No, I've, I've done the same myself. I was involved in an open source project uh, working with MIT, looking at contact tracing. And we needed loads of geolocation data. Um, and the only data I had was data from my own phone. And I didn't want to push that onto GitHub in the open source world. So I worked with some uh, machine learning specialists to do the same thing, to take my location history for the last five years, put it through an algorithm to produce something with the same statistical profile, but different data, um, so that I could then share that with the confidence that nobody would know where I lived. So yeah, I, I agree. That's a fascinating topic, synthetic data. Another example is, have you been to thispersondoesnotexist.com? It's like a generative adversarial network yeah, that generates yeah. faces, really realistic faces. So you can use that for test data, for things like testing Maybe not facial recognition, but maybe if you just need some some pictures for your your testing, it's fantastic. Yeah, indeed, that's uh, uh, yeah, that's an, a nice one, and they're working on on more things like that. Um, on the other hand, that brings me also to one of the topics that scares me most uh, related to AI, and that's the whole deep fake stuff, Be- because I'm very worried about the moment that somebody goes to court with a video and the judge can't determine whether it's a real video or a fake video. And then what does the judge uh, decide eh, about uh, uh, in in such a case? And and that's, yeah, related to, to, uh, yeah, the whole transparency and, and, yeah, how do we know what is still real? And and that's something that indeed bothers me. But we'll see. Mm, scary. Okay, well, Rick, thank you for coming on the show today. You're you're an experienced podca- podcaster, right? You have your own podcast. Yeah, that's true. We we uh, together with two colleagues, we do podcasts in both in Dutch and in English. And our English podcast is called the Technology Labs Podcast. And people may find that on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Cool. Okay. Well, listen, thank you for coming on today. Uh, This was Adam Leon Smith and Rick Marcellis. 
uh, from Sujeti talking about AI testing and quality. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure. In episode two, we're going to be talking about deep reinforcement learning and how you can use it to test the huge state space of Android apps. So speak to you again then.